Hey, good morning. Good to see everybody. Thanks for being here at Summit Crossing this morning. Uh, welcome online. If you're tuning with us online, thanks for being with us this morning. And if you're new with us this morning, my name is Bill Mogzig. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. We just want to say welcome. We're, we're so glad that you're giving us some of your time. We actually don't think it's an accident if you are in the room right now. And so even if your family member finally dragged you here, or maybe you're just like checking out a church because you just moved here, uh, we want you to feel as at home as you can right now. And I realize that that's kind of a big thing if this is your first week uh, visiting with us to try to make yourself at home. You know, churches can be intimidating places and, and, and they can be places that you feel like you have to put a mask on and not be yourself. And we're kind of trying to be that, the opposite of that. We're kind of trying to be the church that understands that the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that we aren't um, saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus did for us. Like there's so much grace to us that even though we're uh, sinners, we're also loved by God enough that he would send Jesus to do everything for us on the cross. And because God leveled us with no requirements to accept us, instead he loved us enough to die for us, it would seem weird for us to like level you with requirements to be accepted around here. And so you can kind of come here and drop your masks, uh, be yourself, uh, know that there's a whole spectrum of people spiritually in the room right now. There's people that have grew up in the church, should be writing books about it, and then there's like people who are really skeptical about Jesus that are around us and having conversations with us and we're, we're engaging with. And so wherever you are on that spectrum, man, it's a safe place just to be yourself. Uh, hopefully you can make yourself at home and feel like uh, you, you're not going to just like be judged around here or anything like that. Uh, so uh, we like to say, come as you are, you know, like, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and we believe that. We, we don't need you to look like us, talk like us, act like us. Um, just want the gospel to be put on display and everything that we're doing as a church. I, I will say this, that, that we, we love Sunday mornings. We love what we're doing here in, the, in, in this service. Uh, we also believe that if the God that we're singing about is as big and real and glorious as it seems like he is in these songs that we're singing, if he really is real, uh, then he would go into every part of our lives, not just Sunday mornings. And so that's why we're pushing people to get involved in our church, not just come on Sundays, but actually join us in some community throughout the week uh, so that we can help each other to see, and what we'll see today, see the glory and the weight of God's glory, like in the everyday stuff of life too. So uh, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying welcome. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 12. We're going to continue our series through John. It's, it's fall. It's, it's on us. Isn't this great, by the way? I love the, I love the nice weather. Like everybody told me when I moved here there was going to be a really hot summer, and I kind of laughed because I came from New Orleans where it's still 120 degrees outside during the day right now, even though the temperature says 72 down there, and it feels like 120 down there. I came here, and I don't think it ever is going to get hot here, by the way. Like, y'all are lying to me that y'all have hot summers, and so it's been such a mild summer. Now we go into, you know, the fall, and, and I'm already loving it because I'm, like, wearing my hoodies and, and uh, my, my sweatshirts. I don't have any, like, cold weather, so I don't know if it's going to get cold here, or cold cold clothes. I don't, I, I don't know if it gets cold here or not. I'm have to go uh, buy a coat or something. I've never had a coat. I've always lived where it's hot, so it'll be cool, man. Maybe we'll, maybe it'll get cold on us, but I love the change of scenes, scenery. I love the change of seasons. It gives us a, a, a chance to kind of take stock of things, you know, like to kind of like look forward while, while kind of remembering in the past, but also get a chance to look forward and, and look at what's coming, and, and today's story, like in John, is one of those stories that's kind of a transitionary story. It, 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 it kind of shows us what's coming. We're going to see it's a story about Jesus marching into Jerusalem and, and kind of what happens with all of that, but it's also a story that, that, that shows us what's going to come, but it's also a story that causes us to stop and remember what we've talked about up until this point. We've been going through the book of John uh, for a long time together, and, and just by way of 
you know, remembering what he's all about, John says at the end of his book that everything that he's written in the book of John in the Bible was written so that you might believe in Jesus. So I want you to stop and think about that for just a second. Because everything in the book of John, even the big stories, remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Even the big theological statements, John chapter 1, he is the word that has been around for all of eternity. Like even the big theological statements, the big miracle stories, all of those were given to us that we might believe in Jesus. And if you think about a lot of people's experience with Christianity, and maybe, maybe this has been your experience with Christianity, a lot of people think believing in Jesus is kind of like the entry-level stuff of Christianity, and so now I want to get into the deeper things of Christianity. And a lot of times people will come to me and say, okay, I get it, we believe in Jesus, I want to learn theology, you know, or I want to go do missions, and I want to do all this stuff. And like we, we think of belief in Jesus as being kind of the entry-level stuff, then you get into the bigger things, and the entire time the entire Bible's saying, no, hold up, belief in Jesus is everything. Like it is, it is what this entire book is about. It, it, it's written that we might believe in Jesus, that we might see in Jesus the very glory of God and that we might believe in him. And, and, and so with what happens in our culture is too often people associate Christianity not with believing in Jesus, that's the entry-level stuff, they begin to associate Christianity with like the cultural Christian things. You know what I'm talking about with cultural Christianity? It's called Christendom. Like the things that kind of are culturally Christian. So we assume that Christianity is about believe in Jesus, now be part of church. Or believe in Jesus and now listen to this type of music. Or believe in Jesus and now behave this way. And oftentimes what gets associated with Christianity are these things about Christian culture. And then if Christianity is all about the culture, it's no wonder then so many, especially young people, kind of struggle with Christianity today. They, they, they kind of look at Christianity, especially our younger folks, and it's no wonder they're so utterly bored with it. They're so looking at it going, is that really it? Like this Christian culture, like is that, is that really the pinnacle of what we're talking about? Because the world's a pretty exciting place. Like I don't know if you know right now, but we're like living in an information age. And so if you have a question on your mind, you grab your phone and you get an instant answer to that question, you can learn anything there is to know in the world. And it's no wonder that so many, especially young people right now, they go, the world has a lot to offer. But if my alternative is Christian culture, it's really not that great of a trade-off. After all, look at what a lot of people, especially outside of the church, especially younger people, what they're really seeing as the emphasis of Christianity. Like so often what ends up happening is people major on the Christian culture as opposed to belief in Jesus. And so we get into all these crazy, crazy like arguments and all these crazy things happen in the church. For, for example, you come into a room like this and there are people that walk into the room and they go, yeah, they got the drums going. I like that, man. I love the drums. And then there's like other people that come in and they're like, where are the pipes? Like I like more pipes like in my church music like I need that organ pump it and some people walk in and they're, they, they literally walk into a room like this and they're like are you even allowed to like play music like I don't know how I feel about about even the fact that there is music being played and we get in these like kind of wars over all this Christian culture and then and then you think about it, it doesn't just stop there we might look at like what we're doing out in the community and certain churches go well I like the fact that you're involved with this kind of person out there and then other churches go well we're not going to be involved with those people we're going to be involved with these people over here and there's like almost like this war going on uh, over cultural things and then you've got like young people coming in and just walk in their shoes for just a second 
when the emphasis of Christianity is all of the culture of Christianity as opposed to belief in Jesus, now a young person looks at this and goes, okay, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to come to something called church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, but then I'm going to move into the deeper things. And so what that means is now I'm going to show up on Sundays while all my other friends are sleeping in, and I'm going to come into a room like this, we're going to do some like karaoke music, for a little while, and then we're going to get like listen to a guy uh, spit into a face mic. Usually he's bald right now. Like, they, like That's the guys that are talking to me. And then at the end of that day, we're going to go, and we're going to go eat lunch together, and then we're going to go to the rest of our week, and I'm going to listen to you know slow um, adult contemporary music on the radio now, and I'm going to show up during the week to something called a Bible study where I'm going to go to school all over again, but it's just going to be Bible school like at night. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to kind of go, and, and each morning I'm going to get up early, and I'm going to do something called prayer and like Bible study every morning. And, and then I'm going to have to like go and, and while my friends are doing fun stuff in the summertime, I'm going to go serve people and sweat and do all this kind of stuff. And then maybe if I keep doing enough of that over the course of my life, when I die one day, I get to go to something called heaven. And you stop and you go, all right, if that's like the, if that's like the outsider looking in going, that's what this is all about, it, it's not that great. It doesn't have that much weight to it. In other words, the world looks a lot better. The world is weightier. It, it holds a lot more relevance to me. It looks like it has a lot more potential to me. But over and against that kind of dichotomy between Christian culture and the world, the Bible comes in and says, this is written not that you might create Christian culture. It's as if Christian culture, when it's being done well, is an overflow of the main thing. But it says, this was written that you might believe in Jesus. And that by believing, to paraphrase it, you might give him the weight of the glory that he is due. In fact, the more that you understand the weight of the glory of God, as it's been revealed in the scriptures, as it's been revealed by Jesus, the more that you grasp the weight of the glory of God, I'm telling you right now, you'll begin to understand that Christianity is so different than the Christendom that we see oftentimes. Um, even though some of that's good, it, it's so much better and deeper than a lot of that stuff. And it certainly has a lot more weight than what the world has to offer. So that when you begin to give God the weight of the glory that he's due, your entire life begins to change. It, it really begins to transfer, transform every single aspect of your life. It's a beautiful thing. And it's kind of what this story is doing here as we go into the final kind of stretch of the book of John. Is he's saying, take a moment. Remember where we are, what we're doing, and take stock of the weight of the glory of God. Like, let's look at it. I'll show you a little bit more of what we're talking about. And the way we'll look at this today, I'm just going to break it down into two main parts. Um, usually I do three. I thought I'd get crazy and shake it up a little bit this morning, and we're just going to do two. So we're going to talk about the weight of God's glory, and we're going to talk about the king of glory. And so it's a cool story. It's a story about the triumphal entry of Jesus. It starts in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. If you have a Bible, you can open up there. We're actually going to come back to the story about Jesus actually walking in, the, the actual entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in just a little bit. But if you, if you pick up the story in verse 20, look at verse 20. Jesus has marched into Jerusalem, and it says in verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast that Jesus went to Jerusalem for, the feast of, of, of Passover. Um, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Beth Bethsaida in Galilee, 
and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And let's stop the reading right there. Because there's a lot going on in this. In this. And the first thing that we got to understand is that this is talking about the weight of glory. That's the whole point of this whole section right here. The weight of glory. Here's what I mean by that. Everywhere Jesus is talking right now, people have heard about him, right? He's become a celebrity at this point. In fact, right here you see that he goes into Jerusalem, and it's not just Jewish people that want to see him now. Even the Greeks want to see him. And so everybody's wanting to get, a, get to Jesus. And, and the way Jesus responds to all this fame that he now has is he says, my hour has come. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's the word glory. A little bit later on, he says, because of this, my soul's troubled. Why? Why is Jesus' soul troubled in verse 27? It's troubled because he knows he's going to the cross. You know, it's, it's important to understand that Jesus never embraces the cross as if it's a friend of his, right? The cross is always uh, an adversary. It's always something that troubles him. And yet he goes, what should I say? Should I, should I ask the Father to take this away from me, this hour away from me? No, I'm not going to ask the Father to take the cross. I don't want to go to the cross but I'm not going to ask him to take the cross away from me, and then he, he, he lays it down. But it's for this very purpose I have come to the cross, to this hour, to marching into Jerusalem to be hung on a cross. For this very purpose I've come to this hour, for Father, that you might glorify your name. There's that word glory again. Jesus just said the reason he went to Jerusalem the reason he goes to the cross. So later on, say the reason that he was raised from the dead. The Bible's really, really clear. All this happened not just so our sins would be forgiven, but that God's glory might be put on full display for us. Now, why is it for that that Jesus came? Why is that such a big deal, that Jesus would put on display the glory of God? And if you remember last week, we talked about God's glory and what it is. God's glory is everything that makes him worthy of your heart's deepest affections. It's everything that makes him worthy of your heart's deepest treasures. It's like everything that makes him worthy of not just your Sunday mornings, like your entire life. So we said that's, that's kind of what, cons- what God's glory consists of, is all of the attributes about him that make him worthy. But, but here we're talking about God's glory and it's taking it an even 
deeper step than just, here's what makes him worthy of your heart's deepest affections. Here what Jesus is saying is, I've come to this hour and glory matters because at the end of the day, your heart was created to glorify something. Your heart is in the constant state of a scale that's happening. And you're constantly weighing things, going, what has bigger weight for my heart? So, so everything in your life, it, it, whether you consciously understand it or subconsciously it's happening, you were created in the image of a God where, where your heart is always going to ascribe weight, give weight to something and say that is therefore what is the most glorious. In fact, the very word glory, that's kind of what it means. Is it something that has uh, mass to it? It's something that has weight to it. It's something that matters because of its weight. And so you're constantly going, does this thing have more weight to it on my heart or does this thing have more weight to it in my heart? And whatever has the most weight is the thing that I, I ascribe the most glory to. Are you, are you tracking with how the Bible thinks of your heart? You're constantly weighing things. And what has the most weight? And this is why we do this all the time. It's not just with God. Take God out of the picture for just a second. Think about advice that you get. So let's say you get advice from three different people, and the, you know, two people give you advice, but the third person that comes says uh, they're, they're trustworthy. They're people that, they're someone that knows you your entire life. They're someone that's an expert in whatever they're about to give you advice on. And so when you have those three pieces of advice, you ascribe more weight to that third person. And so therefore, you actually glorify their advice more than the others. That's why you take the advice of the third person. It's like what I, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had people saying to me, giving me advice on what to do with my Saturday. And some people said, uh, don't even watch the game between Alabama and A&M because you being an Aggie, A&M has no chance whatsoever against, uh, against Alabama. And then I had the one friend that essentially said, no, you should totally watch the game. They totally, uh, they totally have a chance. And that person had the weight in the, in the glory. And so I watched the game. And we all know exactly what happened. A&M, uh, A&M totally obliterated uh, Alabama in a, a new era of football glory has been ushered in uh, from this point forward. Y'all will notice, by the way, I didn't tell that joke last week, right? So I, I thought y'all might punch me in the throat if I told you that last week. Here's the, <laughs> here's the point. I went to Texas A&M. I have to, I have to at least talk about it at some point. Um, here is the point, is that the thing that has the most glory has the most weight. And this is why God goes to such great lengths to show you not just that he's glorious, but why. Because every time you come to a place that you go, no, I see your glory in this thing. It looks better than the glory that the world has to show. The reason God's doing that is because it makes him a little bit weightier and a little bit weightier and a little bit weightier in your life. All of your life is going to be chasing after how do I see in God enough weight in his glory that he's better to me than the things of this world. And so what ends up happening in, in, in this entire story is God is essentially saying, I am all glorious, and until you understand that in me is the weight of everything you've been chasing after, you're going to put your faith in things that never have that much weight to begin with. And that's why your life is going to be so out of whack. That's why you're going to have so much uh, trouble. That's why you're going to have so much anxiety, so much fear. And in the end, that's why you're going to be chasing after things that don't bring your heart satisfaction because you're chasing after things that you think have weight to them, but in reality, they weigh nothing compared to me. So you can think of it like if you put it on a scale, let's say you take two pennies, you throw it on this side of the scale, and on this side of the scale, you throw like an 18-wheeler Mack truck on there. 
Now, if you did that and you tried to weigh it, what, what happens? I mean, the 18-wheeler goes boom and hits the ground, right? And it sh- like shoots the pennies up. Now, the pennies have some weight to them, right? But compared to the weight of the Mack truck, they're really nothing. They're insignificant compared to wh- what, what, it, what, what the Mack truck is, right? And what happens in our life is too often we see things. We'll take things like um, money. I'll just do a couple of easy ones this morning. Like We'll take money, and we see money as this really weighty thing, and we think it has all of the weight that our hearts need. And so we think to ourselves, man, if I just, if I just had a little bit more money, uh, I, could, I could finally get a PlayStation 5, and then if I could just have that PlayStation 5, like my entire life is just going to be better. I'm going to have the comfort I need, and, and life is going to be good. Or we take it, and we go, man, if I could just get enough money, I could finally go to the college I want to go to. Or if I just get enough money, I could finally get married to that girl I want to get married to. If I just have enough money, I could finally uh, afford to send my kids to college. Or if I just had enough money, I could finally relax and retire and actually enjoy my retirement. It doesn't matter. We all chase after this money. And what ends up happening is we think money has so much weight to it that literally when we have it, we think we have everything. When we don't have it, we're struggling because we're like, if I don't have it, I'm not going to have enough weight for my life to matter. The hard thing in that, of course, is that money was never meant to carry that kind of weight. It was never meant to give you what your soul is ultimately chasing after. We assign too much weight to things of the world that in the end don't satisfy us because they don't weigh more than the Mack truck but we get confused. You can do this with relationships. It doesn't have to just be money. Think of relationships. Man, if that girl or that guy would just finally talk to me, I would feel like I have some sort of like, like identity at school. Or if, or if I could just marry that dude or marry that girl or we could just get together and share the rest of our lives together, like finally I'll feel like I matter and finally I'll feel like I can be happy together. Or, or maybe you are married and you go, man, if I could just have this relationship and our marriage could just go back to what it was at the beginning. We could be like newlyweds and the romance could come back and we wouldn't be fighting all the time. Or, or, you know, you can go on and on and on and too often, even in our relationships, we go, if I could just have the right friendships or the right, right spouse or the right relationships, then I'll have everything my soul's looking for. And the whole time the Bible's going, you're assigning glory to something that has no weight. And your entire life is going to rotate around whatever you give the most weight to. When you give your weight to all of the relationships, it doesn't weigh enough. That's why they let you down. Your wife was never meant to bring you fulfillment ultimately. This is why the Bible says, even in marriage, uh, a marriage that is gospel-centered is the marriage where a husband goes, I've, I've received everything that I need from Jesus. He's given me everything that I have longed for in a relationship. I'm utterly fulfilled in him, and because I'm utterly fulfilled in him, I don't need my wife to be my functional savior anymore. I can lay down my life for my wife and treat my marriage as a place where I serve rather than be served. And now all of a sudden, when, when, when you do it that way, all of a sudden your, your marriage, while it matters, it doesn't have the most weight in your life anymore. You, you can go on and on and on and on, and too often what happens is we get confused, and we begin to say the things of the world are as weighty as the glory of God, when all along God is going, I'm way bigger, I'm way weightier, my glory is way better than anything the world has to offer. Like he'll literally say, um, you like beauty? Are you chasing after beauty in your life? I am ultimate beauty. Literally, the beauty of my glory is so weighty that anything else that's beautiful in the world is measured against me as the standard. That's ultimate beauty. He's not just saying I am beautiful. He's saying there's nothing that even compares to me. 
Like, you can do that with every attribute of God. I wrote down a bunch of them. You want wisdom? He's saying, I am wisdom. I'm not just good advice. I am wisdom. I am the truth. Every other truth in the world rotates around me. Nothing even compares to me. I am ultimate truth. I can go on and on and on. You want purity? I am purity. You want grace? I am grace. You want power? I am power, and everything else in the world bows its knee to me. Like, that's how glorious he is claiming that he is. And you stop and think about it for just a second. I mean, God's glory is absolute. What he is saying is that he is so weighty that if you believe the God of the Bible, if you can turn your eyes and begin to believe in him, nothing else in the world compares to him. Nothing else has that weight in your heart. Now, do you see the challenge that's in front of us then? Do you see it? Because I can get up here and say, God is the weightiest. You ought to give him all the glory, give him all the weight in the world. And at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, but I really want the Xbox. I really want the PlayStation 5. Like, it seems like it has a lot more weight. Or, like, God is completely, <laughs> he's, he's the most glorious, he's everything you've been chasing after. And you're like, yeah, but I am, like, really lonely. And I could really use a boyfriend right about now. You, you see the challenge that we're in front of right now. The challenge of your life is to see the glory of God and ascribe to it the weight that it's due. To give your heart over and assign to God the weight of your heart's deepest affections. That is the challenge of the Christian life. The old time theologians used to call it uh, trust and repent. Repent and trust. Over and over and over day, every single day. What, what do they mean by that? They said basically the essence of the Christian life is every day you wake up and you turn away from the things of the world. You see the glory of God and you give him more and more weight in your heart. You see him as the ultimate treasure. It's the challenge. It's the, it's the fight that's ahead of us. It's why as a church here even we say Sunday mornings matter, what we're doing here matters, but what matters even more is what you do throughout the week in community together. Like have you ever stopped and asked why does God make the essence of the church community? Like you ever stopped, do you realize the church is not an institution, it's a, it's a family together on mission. It's, it's community on mission. And why did God make the church that? Did he like spin the cosmic wheel of fortune like, I don't, what am I going to make the church? Oh, community. Like, is that what he did? That's not what he did. The reason he made community such a big deal is because it's only in community that we go into the everyday stuff of life and begin to wrestle with how is God more glorious than what I'm facing throughout my week? How is God better than my job? How is God better than my unemployment? How is God better than my wife? How is God better than the service that I'm giving? Like, like how is God better? How is he bigger? You've got to have that... Uh, they don't get thanked enough. Hey, if you're with us online, still hey again. I don't know how long I've been screaming without any audio online. That's great. Um, so the, ba <laughs> the battery. 
Oh, they don't train me on how to recover from that, y'all. Glory. (laughs) All right. We'll just jump into this quick illustration. We're going to move into talking about why God is glorious. But think of it this way. Your battle that you're in is is to think about God's glory the way I think about my baseball cards growing up. And so, you know, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, if, you, if you grew up back then, um, you know that baseball cards were a thing back then. And I used to collect, like, all of the baseball cards. And I had, like, the complete sets. I'd go to baseball card shows, and I had, like, the complete set of, like, 1989 tops. And I had Donruss, and I even had Fleer. Like, I had all of these, like, like brands of baseball cards. But my, my, my best possession I had was a complete set of the 1989 upper deck. In the very first card in that set was a brand-new King Griffin. Junior rookie card, and if you collected cards back then, you knew that was the that was the holy grail of cards. So I had a couple of them. I had the complete set, and then I had this other one on the side. And back then, it was so valuable. I was like, I I've got a treasure on my hands, and so I took it, and it, it had like its own like case, like a real thick case. I kept it in that, and then like I checked right when I was like graduating from high school, it was worth like three hundred dollars, which back then felt like a, a fortune. And so I put it away, and it stayed in my parents' closet, my, my, my bedroom at my parents' house in the closet until a couple years ago when my parents were like, you're a grown man, come get all your stuff. And so they kicked my stuff out of their closet, and I had to take it. We began to look up all the prices of my baseball cards again, and the very first one I ran to was the one, the holy grail of my cards that I protected all these years. If it was $300 when I graduated from you know, high school, I, I, I don't have no clue what it's worth today. I'm going to put my kids through college today with this one baseball card. And so I go and I get my King Griffey Jr. rookie card, and I go on eBay, and I'm like, what am I going to get for it? Is it going to be like 10 grand, 20 grand? Like, how much is this thing going to be worth? And if you go right now onto eBay and you try to get a 1989 King Griffey Jr. baseball card, it's worth about $2 at this point. Too bad. It'll cost you more to have them ship you that card than to actually have it in your possession and sell it. And so what ended up happening with me is I had this treasure I thought was valuable, but in reality was worthless. In reality, it, it would have been better. There's, a, there's literally a documentary about the trash card era that you can go watch online. And at the end of it, they're literally uh, out in a park, and they're throwing all their baseball cards in piles and making bonfires out of them because they said it's cheaper for us to burn our baseball cards than to go buy firewood from that era because we thought we had a treasure but in reality when you look at it a little bit closer what ended up happening was everybody bought those cards back then it inflated the value so they have no value to them whatsoever everybody has them so now they're worthless the more you looked at it and you you began to examine what you really had it had no value had no weight to it wasn't worth it now compare that to like antiques roadshow right like, if you go watch Antiques Roadshow, what is Antiques Roadshow? I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's, you, you have that vase sitting on your shelf that was like your great-grandma's vase, and for whatever reason, that you inherited that ugly vase on the shelf, and it sat there collecting dust for a generation. And then somebody walks through your door, and they go, hey, do you realize what you have on your shelf right there? There are people that will give you millions for that. And that's how you end up on Antiques Roadshow, because then you go and you go, here's this ugly vase, and you hand it to some guy that's sitting on the show, and that expert on the vase takes it in his hands, and he starts to cry like a singletary tear of pure joy when he sees what you have. It's like he starts to weep then, and you're like, what in the world? He goes, this vase is worth millions of dollars. It's almost priceless. Now this thing that you didn't think had value, now someone who understands it, can see it, tells you this has real, real value to it, and what do you do? 
It's no longer sitting on your shelf collecting dust, being ignored. The first thing you're doing is, how do I protect this thing and get out of this room without somebody jumping me and taking it from me? And then the second thing, you're probably going, how do I cash in on this as quick as I possibly can? Because you have a treasure on your hands. That's the challenge of the Christian life. It's to reject the treasures that we thought would give us value and begin to say these do not have the same worth as I begin to see what they really are, whether it's my fame, whether it's my comfort, whether it's my relationships, whether it's my self-status, whatever it is, I begin to reject those things and say they don't have as much value as this real treasure that I have, God himself. More weight than I possibly could realize. And the only way that you begin to give God the value that, and the worth and the weight that is due his name is to see him emerge from the scriptures as the ultimate treasure, the ultimate God, the one with the weight of all of the glory. And when you see him, to turn from the world, to trust him, and to ascribe to him the weight that is due his name. So let's practice that as we close out today by looking at this triumphal entry of Jesus. I want to show you how what you see happening when Jesus comes into Jerusalem shows you why God is worthy of the weight of your heart, why he's worthy of your entire life, why he is the ultimate one that you've been searching for. And what you have when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry of Jesus walking into Jerusalem, is it's literally the arrival of the king. This is what they say right here. If you're in verse 12, John chapter 12, verse 12, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out and to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What in the world did that mean? The disciples don't get it at first, but they very much get it later on. They know exactly what's happening. What in the world was happening? First thing you need to understand that they understood back then, every human being wants a king. You want a king, I want a king. I realize we're Americans, we don't like kings. I want to be my own king. Don't you understand that you're chasing after a king when you want to be your own king? Like all of us chase after needing to be ruled by somebody. It's in, our, it's, it's in the very DNA of what it means to be human beings. In fact, we'll let money or our job rule over us because we think if we have money or a job ruling over us, then we have everything that we need. We all long for a king. And so this is in us from the very beginning. But what's beautiful is that the Bible says God is the king that came not just to conquer. He came to ultimately give you complete and total life, to give you everything you've been looking for, to be the ultimate king of kings. This is what happened in the story and why Jesus riding in on the back of a donkey mattered so much is, if you know the Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they enter into sin for the first time, and they try to become their own gods, and they're kicked out of the garden in the very first response of God to Adam and Eve after their first sin. Do you know what it was? He didn't look at Adam and go, how dare you break my rules? I will make you toil the ground. And he didn't look at Eve and say, how dare you break my rules? Now I'm going to make it painful for you throughout the rest of your life just to punish you. The very first response of God to mankind's sin wasn't to look at Adam. It wasn't to look at Eve. It was to look at the serpent, Satan himself. And to say to the serpent, Satan himself, I am going to raise up an offspring of Adam to set my people free, to, 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 to conquer 
the ultimate enemy, to conquer you. You're going to bruise him on the heel. You're going to strike him. You're going to cause pain on him. But he is going to crush your head and leave no doubt who the ultimate king is. So God's very first response to mankind's sin isn't to get mad at them. It's to save them. To say, I'm sending the king that you need to come and to set you free. And then you look throughout the Old Testament, and the Old Testament isn't a story about God just having like a bad week, and so he's grumpy and angry and just wanting to kill everybody. What is the Old Testament? It's literally God making good on his promise back in Genesis 3.15 that Jesus will come and set us free. This is why anytime you have a threat to the line to Jesus, God will, let's say Pharaoh's army is threatening the line to Jesus, God will split the Red Sea and then he'll collapse the Red Sea on the threat as the line of Jesus passes through it. Like the entire story is God making good on his promise that the king is coming. This is why when you get to Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 9, you have this prophecy that when this king comes, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, but then it throws out something really, really weird. It says he's going to ride into Jerusalem, the, the very heart of Satan himself back then. Like the dragon's lair, and the king's going to ride into Jerusalem, and the people are going, yeah, he's going to ride, yeah, the king's coming. He's going to set us free from Satan, absolutely. He's riding on the back of, of like a stallion, you know, like riding in, like battalion of tanks behind him. Here he comes. But then Zechariah 9.9 says he's going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Back of a donkey. Lowly, meek, humble. Why do you have to do that? Because in order for the king to set us free, he didn't need to ride into Jerusalem to set us free from an oppressive regime like Rome. There was a bigger enemy. Our enemy wasn't even just Satan. Even though he's going to crush Satan's head, there was an even bigger enemy. The enemy was sin itself. And we knew that this king could not just ride into Jerusalem swinging a sword, just going, check me out, I'm strong, and I'm going to go up onto the throne, and everybody's going to bow before me. In order for this king to ultimately set us free, he was going to have to follow a road, not to a throne, but to a cross. To a cross. What kind of king is all-powerful, prophesied about since the very beginning, that's going to crush Satan himself, that is also low enough to say, I will take the road to a cross. That's the king of kings. Because you don't just need a king in your life that's all powerful right now. I know your life's chaos. I know that you're going through hard times. I know that you're suffering. I know that it's painful. I know that you don't know if you're ever going to be accepted by anybody again. I know you're utterly lonely. I know that the world feels out of control and it's closing in on you. And so yes, you need the king to be all powerful. And he is saying, I am all powerful. In fact, the Bible says he's like a lion, the lion of Judah. He, he is all powerful. But you also need a king who also doesn't just come in to swing the sword. He comes in to embrace you as his own as well. A king that is gracious and humble and is literally looking at your sin and looking at your shame and looking at all the ways you turned your, 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 your back on God and he's saying, I'm still coming for you and I have come for you. And so when Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, we're going to Jerusalem, they go, yes, finally, let's go to Jerusalem, let's wreck shop. And he's like, by the way, get me the donkey. They're like, whoa, hold up. I need you to be more powerful than that. Because kings don't ride on the back of donkeys if they have any power, but this king did. He goes into Jerusalem, and we know that the same crowd that's laying palm branches at his feet, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord, will be crying out, crucify him a few days later. And we know that he goes up onto the cross, and I love what Jonathan Edwards says in the best sermon I've ever read in my life called The Excellencies of Christ. He literally says, Jesus 
the king of kings, the meek, humble, powerful king goes up onto the cross, the very sword of Satan himself, and he takes the enemy's sword onto himself and then turns it onto Satan to slay him. Like that's how powerful this king is. That even low, even humble, even riding on the back of a donkey to a cross, he can take the cross, the sword of Satan, and slay him with it because of his great love for you. Do you understand, have you even begun, begun to understand the depth of his kingship for you? Everything that you've been looking for in your life, everything that you have chased after with all these things in the world is fulfilled in him. Do you want peace in your life? You have the Lion of Judah. Do you want grace in your life? You have the Lamb that was slain for you. That's why we sing, he's the lion and the lamb. Do you want identity in your life? You literally have the king that says, you are a son and a daughter of mine, and so therefore you are who I say you are. That's why we sing, I am who you say I am. The world can no longer identify me. I'm identified by the king of all kings, and he, calls, he literally calls me prince or princess, like he's, he's that big of a deal. Do you realize what kind of king does that? Like, this is a glorious king that if you can turn and trust in him, if you can turn from the world and say, I see him and, and God, you give me faith to believe, but I see him and I see, I see your glory and therefore seeing your glory and believing it, I ascribe and assign to you the weight that you are due. When you begin to do that, everything changes. And now all of a sudden, instead of being another person in the crowd screaming, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord, and then screaming out, crucify him, you become like the disciples who say, I will follow you anywhere. Where else do we go but to the one that has the greatest weight of all glory? Do you see him today? Is your world chaos? Do you need that strong king? Turn to him. He knows what you're going through. Do you feel so utterly sinful and ashamed that you almost feel guilty sitting in the room right now with us? He is the lamb that was sacrificed for you willingly. So turn to him and trust in the grace that he's extending to you right now. He is all glorious. And so what we want to do with the rest of our morning together is to just ascribe and assign to him that glory that he's due. Let's pray. Lord, we, just reading a book and listening to a guy like me talk, have no, no understanding of how glorious you are unless you choose to open up our eyes right now. And that's what I pray, Holy Spirit, is that in your great grace before us and in the ultimate power that you have, give us the grace to see your glory. Reveal it to us right now. God, I don't know what people in this room need to see from you right now. I, I, I pray that they would see that you are a king of all kings, that you are uh, the, the one unique king that we need, the all-powerful one, the, the, the gracious one. I pray that people would feel your presence in this moment and know your grace. God, that if there's people here right now that just stumbled into the room and don't believe in you, have never really trusted in you, God, in your mercy on us and on them, give them faith to believe. Make them to believe right now, God. I pray that you would open up their eyes and their hearts to you. And Lord, what we ask is that as we come to the close today, we know that 
the more that we see you as our God, the more it changes every aspect of our lives. And we pray that would begin even right now that as we, as we close out a, a service together on a Sunday morning, that it would actually close out at the pinnacle of what it could be, worshiping you, giving you the glory that is due your name because of who you are, what you've displayed to us in the gospel of Jesus. So we turn to you, Father, and we pray that you would receive the worship from us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we're going to close out by, by just worshiping him, by celebrating him, by, by, by practicing giving him uh, the, the adoration and the praise and the glory that he's due. We do that two ways, by, by practicing communion or the Lord's Supper and by singing to him, by just singing songs of glory to him. And so we're going to do the Lord's Supper first, communion. On the top of your cup, you see these cups that look like this. You can pull off that plastic layer. There's a piece of bread on the top that you can pull out. And this bread represents the the body of Jesus that's going to be that, that's broken for our sins. When Jesus went up onto the cross, he died for our sins. Uh, Jesus on the cross means that our sins aren't forgiven by what we do, but what he did for us. Literally, we were owed the uh, Satan's sword, the cross itself, because of our sin. And Jesus took that on himself so that it, we didn't have to take it on. Like, that is grace. That is his lowliness resulting in us being exalted into the kingdom of God. I want you to stop and think about that for just a second in your own lives today. Do you feel utterly ashamed or utterly hopeless in your sin? Do you feel like it's too late for you? Do you feel like you, you, you need to repent all over again today? If so, understand that the cross is waiting for you. It's calling out your name. Jesus is literally saying, come to me. Receive what I did on the cross. Just trust me. And if you can see that, God has a little bit more weight of glory in your life. And I would encourage you to take the bread with us this morning. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he passed it around to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat it. This is the bread of my body that will be broken for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And if you open up that foil on your, on your cup, there's some grape juice in there. The grape juice represents the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is great news for us because it's not just that Jesus died for our sins. Here's the great news. God is with us. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in your life in the everyday stuff of life. What the Bible calls that is the new covenant, the new arrangement that God has made with us through the gospel. It's the good news that, yes, Jesus died for your sins, but just as great is the fact that God is with you right now. That means that whatever you're going through, whatever uh, life is throwing at you, no matter how much the world is pressing in, God is here with us. Do you realize Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and as a result of that, we receive the Holy Spirit inside of us. The Holy Spirit is God's very presence in this place right now. Boy, that is an amazing God that would be this gracious and this powerful and yet want to be with you every moment. If you're going through hard times right now, if you're, if you're struggling right now, if you don't even know how you're going to make it through the night right now, the new covenant is the grace that you need, that God is with you walking moment by moment with you and will never leave you or forsake you. If you can turn to him and trust him in that, he has a little bit more weight today in your life. And I encourage you to take the cup with us. That later that night, Jesus took a cup full of wine, passed it around to his disciples and said, drink this, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the new covenant that will be shed for you. So do this in remembrance of me. 
And so what's left is for us to worship him. So would you stand with me as we, as we pray? God, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the glory, the weight, the beauty of Jesus until he comes. And so what we pray now, God, is that we could turn to you and give you the glory that is due your name because you alone have the weight. Lord, receive this from us as an act of worship from us. And we turn to you now, Father, and we pray this to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.